Why do phone plans come with a catch? With 48, they don't. 100 gigs, all calls, all texts for 10.99. Forever. And a free gig to try a reliable 4G network before you buy. Just 10.99. 10.99. 10.99. 10.99. Simple. Any way you hear it. 48. Changing up mobile. Fair use supplies. See 48.a. Welcome to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post's political podcast. I'm Rob Parsons, the Yorkshire Post's political editor. You'll be used to hearing the dulcet tones of my colleague Jerry Scott, but for this episode, I'll be taking over the reins to speak to a guest who I'm really excited to be interviewing. Now, you might have noticed that it's party conference season in the political world. Normally, that would mean days of the political classes gathering together in Manchester, Birmingham, Brighton, or sometimes Harrogate to hear big speeches by party leaders talk about policies and perhaps have a gossip over a glass of warm white wine. Now, the coronavirus pandemic means most of that won't be happening this year, but the main parties are still holding conferences in largely virtual form, with the headline speeches still aiming to set the news agenda for the following day and galvanise the grassroots. That means that in the coming days, Boris Johnson's team and the PM himself will be putting the final touches to his speech for this year's Tory party conference, which kicks off this weekend. They've got a tough job, aiming to strike precisely the right tone, with enough to keep the various factions of the party happy, and something newsworthy to get it on the following day's front pages. One man who knows how they feel is our guest today, Keelan Carr. Born in Yorkshire and educated at a comprehensive school in Wakefield, his way with words earned him a job at 10 Downing Street, and saw him write Theresa May's well-received speech to Conservative Party Conference in 2018 later becoming her Director of Research and Messaging. He left government last year, and this, I think, is his first media interview since then. Keelan, welcome. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks, Rob. Thank you for having me on. Now, I thought, as well as finding out about your life at the heart of government, it would be fascinating to go back over some of the more memorable sections of the speech you wrote for Mrs May back in 2018. But first, let's go back into how you got into politics in the first place. So you went to Outward Grange School in Wakefield and then to Oxford University in in 2003. Were you interested in politics at that stage or did that come later? I was interested. Um, I was a sort of armchair participant, if you like. I didn't do anything about my interests other than read the news and watch watch the telly and talk to my friends and talk to my dad about it. when I went to university in 2003, it was during um, Ian Duncan Smith's leadership of the Conservative Party, and it was not a period which was, a, you know, frankly, a particularly inspiring period uh, for a young person, I think, uh, looking at the Conservative Party. Um, uh, but whilst I was um, at university, um, there was the 2005 general election, and then uh, shortly thereafter, David Cameron took over as uh, leader of the party. And um, I, I sort of thought that was a more interesting period I was quite impressed by David Cameron and I sort of thought that you know with his leadership the party was back in uh the mainstream uh so um I was um interested in but not active in politics before I uh, got a job with it obviously you're a conservative and, and of course Wakefield famously is now part of the blue wall uh, of conservative seats as of last December but presumably when you were growing up that felt quite a long way from being the case were there many other young conservatives to talk to uh, talk to in, in West Yorkshire while you were growing up 
Um, I don't know, young conservative is such, a, such an appealing phrase, isn't it? Um, no, and you're right. When, well, I actually grew because I grew up in the Morley and Outward bit of uh, Wakefield, and that that um, was Ed Balls' seat when I was uh, growing up, and it it had always been sort of marginal. So it had always been, and actually Wakefield had been pretty marginal in the 1980s, and the, I think the Conservatives came within about 300 votes of taking it in 1983. So it beneath the surface of um, it being a sort of safe Labour seat, there there was always you know there's always a strong Conservative vote there. Um, so it, it, I think seats like Wakefield, it's always been quite tantalising for the Conservatives because they sort of thought, well, if we can find a way of just um, just breaking through, then there is you know there is support there. Um, but no, you're right. It was you know it was not you know it was not a um, it wasn't a common thing. I mean, I, I, I didn't sort of wear my politics too visibly on my sleeve when I was at school because you know no, it's not the thing you do when you're when you're growing up, I suppose. Now, you joined Theresa May's team in Downing Street as a special advisor in the summer of 2016, not long after she became Prime Minister. I imagine lots of people have an idea about what Number 10 is like. How did you find it as a place to work? It's an amazing place. It's, it is the apex of government, so it attracts a lot of very, very good people. But you know, on the civil service side, you know, they are the best of the best of the best. And um, you know, people talk about the Rolls-Royce machine of the civil service, and it, you know, it is... Uh, when you're working down the street, it's you know you, you you've got some very very impressive people, um, and the the prime minister's you know job as the head of the government you know it is, it is you know as I say it is at the apex of everything and you know from it's defence, foreign policy, uh, security policy, domestic policy, economic policy, you know everything, um, the top of the all of those trees is is, is in Ten Downing Street and it, it, it's um, a very consequential, it feels like you're in a very consequential place with lots of very very good people working very very hard but then also the nature of it is that you know when decisions get you know if, if the decision is to be made by the prime minister it's because it's a very hard decision that hasn't been made you know further down the the chain of command so it's there's a lot of very difficult issues as, uh, as well i think it's also fair to say that theresa may is perceived by the public as being perhaps a tad stiff and robotic in her public appearances obviously remember the somewhat cruel nickname the maybot did you see another side to her working with her in close quarters? And does that reputation present certain challenges when your job is to write speeches designed to make her seem as appealing as possible? I mean, obviously that 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 is that that nickname was out there. I mean, no, not at all. I, you know, people who know her work with her. She's she's not robotic at all. She's a you know she's a very warm, uh, personable, uh, nice person, and um, she was a great person to work for. Um, you know, sometimes in politics, you you see, you know, working it, you get to know people who um, present themselves in the media in a very polished, um, friendly, reasonable, appealing way. But then when you get to know them in real life, they're horrible. And uh, she's not that at all. You know, she's she's someone who, you know, uh, probably her f- first among her skills is not spinning a line to... Uh, um, a news interviewer but um she's someone who is um i think in the public i think the public did see as well that she's someone with a lot of integrity and a lot of um decency and uh, i think those are important qualities in a, in a politician i do think the public you know can perceive those absolutely and before we recorded you were relating an incident from the conservative party conference from 2017 i think when 
people will remember that that speech uh, which made headlines for all the wrong reasons that she had a cough i think that left her unable to speak and parts of the set fell off behind her but even in what was quite a difficult moment for her she still had the human touch didn't she um take us through that yeah so we've been obviously people probably remember that speech for as you say the the litany of things that that went wrong all of which were just outside of anyone's control um and then after the party conference speech there is uh there's a sort of um buffet and tray of drinks laid on in, a, in the green room at the back where the team gets together and just uh, has a little chat afterwards um and straight after she'd come off the stage virtually she was um you know in the room with us her usual her usual self just you know uh taking it in her stride you know um uh having a chat you know not not being histrionic not uh having a meltdown or anything just being a very calm you know measured presence and um she caught my eye and, and I'd lent her earlier in the the week, I'd lent her a suit carrier. I can't remember why she needed a suit carrier for some reason. Um, and the first thing she said was not, you know, oh my God, what's just happened? It was, oh, Keelan, did you get your suit carrier back? And I said, oh yes, I have. Uh, and it was, that was just a very telling incident of, of, of her, you know, she's not someone who puts herself first or who is ego driven or, you know, I think most politicians who've had that experience would have understandably uh, been in a, a space where they were, um, focused on themselves and focused on the terrible thing that just happened to them. Um, but no, but she was, you know, she, she wasn't. And I think, you know, generally in politics, you know, she, she's not someone who put an act on, you know, she didn't have a, she didn't have a sort of Theresa May persona that she'd developed over the years that she'd honed uh, as her sort of public act. You know, she was just the person that, you know, that she is and people who, you know, know and work with her, you know, uh, rated her very highly for it, I think. Yes, absolutely. So if we throw forward to October 2018, the speech you wrote for Mrs May at party conference, um, the background, of course, is that her speech the previous year was remembered for all the wrong reasons. Um, but in October 2018, Brexit was still a big political issue. Uh, number 10 were trying to get Brussels to agree to its Brexit withdrawal deal. Uh, and you had the likes of Boris Johnson sniping from the sidelines. Um, now, as Theresa May's speechwriter, you obviously write a lot of words for her um where does a party conference speech rank in terms of how anxious you feel about it oh it's the big it is the big speech of the year definitely it's um it's the one you know about it's in the calendar you know it's always in the calendar it's an annual event so, uh, so you know sometimes you get a gig where it's a very important speech with a lot of pressure but you've only got a day to write it um and then you know you can only do what you can do in a day Whereas this, you've had all year to write it. So there's no excuse for it not being good because, you know, it's not as if someone's just sprung upon you the fact that you're going to be having a conference speech to write. Um, so it, it's the longest speech, usually the longest speech that um, a politician will deliver uh, during the year. I mean, it's, it's sort of about usually about an hour in length. Uh, it's also the chance you get to sort of speak directly to the public in a sense because the the, the broadcast... Um, media they you know they don't they don't apply a filter to it as much as they do normally with a speech normally with a speech you would um only you know it might be taken live on the news channel but it would not be taken live on um bbc one or anything and you know you would just be it would all be just a, a few clips on the news maybe if you got if you got 10 seconds of a clip from a speech on the news you regard that as a success whereas the conference speech there will be a proper package where they will clip sort of five or six decent sized chunks of it and it's a chance to uh 
you know, it's a shop window really for the government's uh, agenda. And it, you know, a good conference speech, you know, in normal times would, would, you know, would that would provide you with some political momentum into the autumn and towards Christmas, and it would sort of set the agenda. Obviously, when you've got something like Brexit going on, that's such a that's such a headwind that um, it, it didn't quite have that effect. But but normally it is it's the big one. It is the big one. Now, those who remember the speech will recall the Prime Minister uh, coming on stage to the strains of Abba's Dancing Queen. Um, whose idea was that? And more generally, how much input did Mrs May have on, on big speeches like uh, that one at conference? Well, in the way that sort of success has many uh, fathers and mothers, I think probably lots of, I don't know, I think I did suggest Dancing Queen, but I think I suggested it very early on as a joke uh, with no expectation that it would actually happen. Um but then I think a, a, a separate a separate channel of, of of colleagues worked out what you know what what the music would be, and then it, in the end it was Dancing Queen. So maybe I you know I like to think that I did plant the seed of that, but I can't take the credit for actually making the decision to to, to play it. But but you know she would be you know very much involved in, in all of it. And the dancing I think was was what that was completely her her idea. I don't think she discussed that with anybody. I think she just thought, well, I'll see how I feel in the moment. But I think if you probably if you're walking and that music's playing, I don't know how you don't dance really. I mean, it, it'd feel awkward to walk with that music playing without dancing. I think. Actually, yes, it, it would seem like she was holding herself back. I think you're right. Uh, I think the backdrop to that was that maybe a few weeks earlier she visited Africa and did some dancing uh, on that trip, and that ended up on video. I think, and there was a, a certain amount of teasing about that. So I guess it was a, a sign that she wasn't taking taking herself too seriously. I think it was. In, uh, well, all, the other thing about common speech is it, it's kind of the political equivalent of a best man speech because it's the, it's the easiest audience you're ever going to have because, you know, they, they're your party members. They've come along, they've queued up for an hour because they want to listen to you speak. They want it to be a success. They're, they're on your side. So when you do something like that, it, it, it's giving them permission to laugh and to clap and to enjoy themselves. And, you know, it's it's you wouldn't try that if you were, if you were doing a speech to a sort of, a group of um, sceptical journalists and you sort of did something like that, you probably wouldn't get, you probably wouldn't get the right reaction. And also, you know, if you watch the broadcast coverage of it, a lot of the people in the, the pundits in the studios were sort of reacted quite, you know, as if it was a bad thing that she'd done it in the, in the moment. But it, amazingly, it, it got a huge amount of pickup, uh, the dancing bit. And I remember I had a, my Google alerts went, you know, crazy and there were, newspapers in India and Korea and Japan and South America. And, you know, it's not often that the Prime Minister's conference speech gets picked up in, you know, several continents. Um, but that one did. And all it took was for her to do a bit of dancing. Uh, so you, you picked out three sections of the speech. The first is about uh, decency in politics. So let's have a listen to that here. Our party has more elected representatives than any other. We have in our hands the power to set a standard of decency that will be an example for others to follow. The late John McCain, who spoke at this conference 12 years ago, put it like this. We argue and compete and sometimes even vilify each other in our raucous public debates. But we have always had so much more in common with each other than in disagreement. That was Joe Cox's message too. It's a truth that the British people instinctively understand because they are not ideologues. They know we all have a common stake in this country and that the only path to a better future 
is one that we walk down together. So let's rise above the abuse. Let's make a positive case for our values that will cut through the bitterness and bile that is poisoning our politics. And let's say it loud and clear. Conservatives will always stand up for a politics that unites us rather than divides us. So can you tell us a bit about the thought process behind that passage? Well, there was a, there was a period, I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's got slightly better since then, I don't know, but there was certainly a period in, in sort of 17, 18 where it, politics had just seemed to, to get, it was probably a hangover from the, the referendum really when a lot of division, a lot of anger, and it was sort of, it seemed to be s- s- tipping into something else, into a sort of, uh, a sort of visceral um, bitterness, as if it was a sort of two, two tribe mentality. And obviously, we, you know, the, the referendum campaign had, had, had been very divisive, and it had the horrible uh, murder of Joe Cox had happened during it. And there was just a sense that, that politics was becoming a, a really unpleasant um, place to be. Um, and it's obviously that's incredibly da- dangerous in a democracy. If, if, if politics becomes uh, somewhere where you know ordinary decent people don't want to get involved because they they don't want to be abused and they don't want to be uh, you know have their lives made a misery, it's that's really dangerous for democracy. I don't know how democracy copes with that in the long term. So I think we wanted to you know, and also because Theresa May is, you know, she's someone who's, who's been involved in politics from a very young age. She was folding and stuffing leaflets when she was, you know, 12 years old and what have you. Uh, and she is, you know, I, I certainly think that she, she, she represents the, a sort of decent tradition of politics of, of, of not being too tribal um, or, or at least not being, um, not being aggressive and unpleasant towards your opponents. Um, and so we thought it would be a good, a good time to make that, to make that point. And, you know, there'd been situations that um, referred to, uh, J.K. Smog and, and Diane Abbott that you know there's a lot of there's a lot of um, gendered abuse there's a lot of um, racially uh, focused abuse and uh, you know I think one of the jobs of a prime minister is to have that sort of uh, the bully pulpit and to speak you know to the nation on behalf of on behalf of the nation if you like and I think that was a chance to to make a, a unifying point that everybody would you know could come together over. So what you described in there was a lengthy section about the importance of decency in politics. And uh, as you would expect from a, a Tory leader at a conference, there's a, a fairly lengthy passage devoted to attacking Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party as well, which then segues into this section on modern conservatism, uh, which we can listen to now. The fallen Labour is a national tragedy. What has it come to when Jewish families today seriously discuss where they should go if Jeremy Corbyn becomes Prime Minister, when a leading Labour MP says his party is institutionally racist, when the leader of the Labour Party is happy to appear on Iranian state TV but attacks our free media here in Britain. That... That is what Jeremy Corbyn has done to the Labour Party. It is our duty in this Conservative Party to make sure he can never do it to our country. (laughs) 
To do that, we need to be a party for the whole country. Because today, millions of people who've never supported our party in the past are appalled by what Jeremy Corbyn has done to Labour. They want to support a party that is decent, moderate and patriotic. One that puts the national interest first, delivers on the issues they care about, and is comfortable with modern Britain in all its diversity. And we must show everyone in this country that we are that party. A party that conserves the best of our inheritance, but is not afraid of change. A party of patriotism, but not nationalism. A party that believes in business, but is not afraid to hold businesses to account. A party that believes in the good that government can do, but knows government will never have all the answers. A party that believes your success in life should not be defined by who you love, your faith, the colour of your skin, who your parents were, or where you were raised, but by your talent and your hard work. Above all... Above all, a party of unionism, not just of four proud nations, but of all our people. A party not for the few, not even for the many, but for everyone who is willing to work hard and do their best. Was there a particular audience you were hoping to reach with those words? I think, it, I th I th I think part of the job of a party leader is to try and describe and embody what the values of the party are. And um, it's, 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 in a sense, it's part of the purpose of a party conference is to, you know, you've got to, it's got to be shot through with, you know, what the party's values are and principles are. And, you know, you, you have to keep stating and restating them. And uh, you can't, you know, it's not like a religion where there's some holy text where it's all written down and then all you need to do is refer people to that. You know, it, politics isn't like that. It's always changing and evolving. And, you know, in every new set of circumstances, you've, I think you've got to you've got to make those points. Um, obviously, the, the the Brexit referendum uh, and you know enacting Brexit has has led to a, a, you know is leading or has led to a realignment of, of politics to an extent, and lots of new people coming into the Conservative Party, some people leaving the Conservative Party, and it, I, you know I think it's it's important to 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 have a clear sense of what your fundamental values are as a party um and you know that the time to make those the time to make those points is is in a is is in a conference speech because it's, it's your ch it's your chance to as the leader describe what the party you're leading is all about and the final section which i must admit did did make me chuckle was uh, this about the importance of business obviously the the background which was big news at the time i think was that Boris Johnson was reported to have used a, an expletive beginning with the letter F in relation to uh, the concerns businesses had about Brexit. Um, now, I don't think Boris Johnson was actually mentioned by name in the speech, but presumably this section was designed to put him in his place, uh, but also remind wavering businesses that the government was on their side. Is that right? Yes, definitely. So um, Mr. Johnson had given a speech the day before, uh, which was not... Uh, wholly <laughs> supportive of uh, Theresa May's uh, policy on Brexit. Um, and I, I thought it'd be interesting to, to mention it just because jokes are important. Like the, the, one of the, the things when you're a speechwriter is you, 
you know, very often the feedback you get is, well, that's a good speech, but where are the jokes? Or, you know, haven't have you got any jokes? And that, they're the hardest things to to do because when you're trying to write a speech, you're, you're normally, you're focused on um, the argument and uh, assembling the, the, making the case in the strongest way. And you don't necessarily, it's a different part of your brain that is thinking of jokes and humour. But um, that joke popped into my head and I, I tried it on various people. And, you know, some people thought it was funny, some people didn't get it at all. Um, and the, the worst thing is, obviously, in any social situation or any professional situation, if you make a joke and nobody laughs, it's, you know, it's pretty awful. Um, but obviously, as I said, you know, I said before, the party conference speech is a bit like a best man speech in that, you know, that the audience is willing you to succeed. So all you need to do is, if, if they're clear it's meant to be a joke, they will probably, they'll probably laugh. Um, and it, it did, did get a laugh. And to all businesses, large and small, you may have heard that there's a four-letter word to describe what we Conservatives want to do to you. It has a single syllable. It is of Anglo-Saxon derivation. It ends in the letter K. Back businesses. Back them to create jobs and build prosperity. Back them to drive innovation and improve lives. Back them with the lowest corporation tax in the G20. Britain, under my Conservative government, is open for business. So I was reading the reviews of the speech and considering the difficulties Mrs May was having, it was, it was, it was received very well and you, you personally were praised in the media for it. How did you feel about that? Well, I was, I don't know. It, it was very odd. I mean, normally when you're a political advisor, I think you, you don't want to be the story. You don't want to be in the news. And it's normally, normally if you are, it's because you, something terrible has happened or you've, you know, you've done something bad. Um, so normally you would think, well, I don't, I you know you, you don't want to be um, in the news. And I, I, I wasn't, I, I wasn't an advisor who, who spoke to the press. So I didn't have relationships with journalists because obviously, you know, you'll know yourself that some, some special advisors job is to, talk to journalists and be on the phone and be on hand and you know you, you develop a relationship by doing that and you become you know uh sometimes you can become friends or at least you become you know you get a good working relationship but I you know I didn't really know any journalists and they didn't really know who I was so I think it was I think it may be part of the thing was that they you know there was this person that they didn't know existed and you know they wanted to write about it but uh, it was it was it was quite strange. Now, a few months after that, you became the Prime Minister's Director of Research and Messaging. Uh, what does that involve and, and how difficult was it, given the, the infighting that was going on in the Conservative ranks at the time? So, uh, Downstreet, was, when I was there, it was divided into various uh, um, sort of teams, really, for sort of, as much as anything, for line management uh, purposes and just as sort of chain of command purposes. And um, the person who was my boss at the time, direct boss, uh, Alex Dawson, uh, who was the director of research messaging, left to get another job. So there was a vacancy. And it was, you know, it was, a, it was in a sense, uh, you know, a, um, a bit of a battlefield promotion in that um, I was the next person in line. So I took that job. So it, it was in charge of speech writing, in charge of um, uh, briefing, uh, and preparing the Prime Minister for um, broadcast interviews print interviews on a factual basis and also the other big thing is, is preparing for prime minister's questions which is obviously the weekly um 
the weekly outing in the House of Commons, uh, which is quite a labour intensive process to uh, to prepare for. Um, so. I was very interested to read a blog post you wrote online in March 2018, so while you were still in, in, in Downing Street, um, coming out as gay and describing why it took you so long to go public about it. it. You spoke about your experiences with some rather unenlightened pupils at your school in Wakefield and described their behaviour as a small blot on my otherwise happy life. Uh, what was the reaction of people around you to that post? It was very, it was very, very good, very warm. Um... I mean, it took me a long time to get around to saying it, partly because I, I, I don't know, I, th- I didn't want to, I, I don't think I was comfortable in talking about it until I was comfortable in talking about it, if you see what I mean. I didn't want, I don't think I wanted to expose myself in that way until I was very um, sure about myself and sure about uh, how I wanted to do it. Um, so by that stage, um, you know, I was... And it was a very, and I put a link on Facebook and you know what Facebook's like. There's lots of people who you're friends with, who you haven't spoken to in donkey's years. Um, and lots of, you know, lots of people got in touch to, to say very nice things, including people that some people went to school with who, um, you know, obviously jogged their, jogged their memories, but it was, you know, it was a very positive, a very positive uh, experience, but, you know, in a sense, you know, I'm fortunate and privileged to, to live in a, a world and a social setting where it's not, it, it wasn't a risk for me to, to, to do that. I mean, it's, it's, it's different for some people who, you know, who don't have that um, support network or who, who live in a, um, a circumstance where, you know, that they, they could be less sure of what the reaction would be to it. Um, so there's always a, you know, there's a bit of, the reason I thought I'd do it publicly was I thought that it's, you know, visibility is important. And if, you know, maybe there was somebody who I knew or, you know, who would see it and would be encouraged by it in some way. So I thought it was worth doing it for that reason. So obviously you, you left government last year and, and, and are now training for a law degree, I understand. Um, I know you still keenly follow what's going on in politics and it made me wonder, do, do you ever think about how you might write big speeches for other political figures? Uh, obviously Theresa May and Boris Johnson are completely different in how they communicate with the public. How, how would you go about writing a speech for the current prime minister would it would it be a completely different process i think it probably would be um i mean the diff- one of the differences you know you said they're quite they are very different people but one of the differences between boris johnson and Theresa may is that you know he he was a is a journalist i mean he he was a professional writer for most of his career and a very highly paid professional writer he's a best selling author so you know he's someone who i think would 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 come to that process probably uh, with a, um, a desire to be perhaps a bit more um, involved in a sort of hands-on way. I mean, it's a bit like if you were, if you were building a house for somebody who was themselves a builder, they would probably, you know, want to get their hands on the tools and uh, be involved in that process. So I think, um, you know, speaking to people who who work with him, I think he's more he's more the sort of person who would want to sit around the laptop with you and, you know, throw phrases around in a sort of a way that that, that Theresa May wasn't because you know she's not somebody who's been a professional. Uh, writer you know she's someone who would you know she would get the professionals in to do the job and would closely supervise and would review and would be the decision maker but would not herself be the person sitting at the laptop you know bashing out the words uh, whereas I think with Boris Johnson he, he, I think he's probably uh, a more, more of a collaborator than a, than a than a client in that respect and I think he wrote I think last year's conference speech I think he, he I think from what I understand he he did a lot of the writing of that himself 
I think I think if you're a powerful person, um, the, the the best humor is self-deprecation. Um, I think if you're trying to, you know, the da- the danger of humor if 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 you're um, if you're a powerful person, if you try and make jokes at other people's expense, you look very mean and petty. And the best way of showing strength is to um, is to be self-deprecating. Uh, so maybe he'll try. Maybe he'll try that. I don't know. Well, I guess we'll have to wait and see uh, next week when the, the Prime Minister gives his, his speech to conference. Um, Keelan, that is a, a fascinating insight you've, you've given us there. So, so thank you very much. And I, I wish you all the very best in the, in the next stage of your career. Thank you very much. It's been great fun. So that's been Pod's Own Country for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's iTunes, Apple or Spotify. And we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review or subscribe. So I've been Rob Parsons, the Yorkshire Post political editor, and we'll see you next time. All the best. If you crave technology that leads, if you appreciate design that inspires, if you want driving dynamics that excite, meet the one. The remarkable BMW 1 Series, featuring front and rear parking sensors, cruise control, fully digital display with navigation and real-time traffic information, along with BMW's latest voice control intelligent personal assistant, all a standard. Meet the One with your own exclusive video consultation. Book yours today at BMW.ie.